I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Hello from North Carolina. I'm talking to you from my father in law's studio in Carborough, surrounded by his art objects and the random pieces or elements of wood and metal that he sends me every once in a while to make my work. It's interesting to think about this stuff in terms of how it comes to play overall with the long-term effects of like where, where you're sort of sitting now, where you're going to end up 20 years from now and how he sort of lived his career. But I think about uh, B. Wirtz, who is the last episode. My son did that introduction because I, I spoke way too much during that interview. It was because B. is one of those individuals, I think about his career and where he's been. He is one of the most generous, kind individuals that I have ever met let alone being in the art community and one of those people that I want to model my career and my art practice around at the same time. Today's guest is also an amazing individual, Lauren Mackler. She started public fiction in Los Angeles. Public fiction is one of those places that they had a space for five years and I would always go to it. And the reason I would go is because I always felt it held an importance and a sort of place in my spectrum of what LA was as being something that was influential, but also important for me to see because I needed to know where my own work needed to go. I always felt like Lauren had sort of an outside perspective of sort of looking down on things and knowing the direction of where some people needed to be in their thought process. She's just very considerate. She's very articulate. She's incredibly smart. And I thank her for taking the time to come on to the episode and give us some insight into how she puts her program together or how she did put her program together and how she thinks about her practice today. So without further ado, here's Lauren. Welcome to the show. How did we meet? When did when did we meet? At uh, Public Fiction. Right. Maybe I came into the to the actual space. It might have been during this exhibition in 2013. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah, 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 it was. The stand-in. The stand-in that you curated with Alexandria Gaddy. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think that's 2013, so three years into Public Fiction. I love that show. It was a really, but it was a rotating show, so there were multiples. I wanted to mention this, but one of the things that is sort of a standard that I've seen you do multiple times is have shows that change over a period of time Yeah, within an exhibition space. So that specific show actually had three formats, right? Yeah, the stand-in, the way that it worked was it showcased 17 different artists whose work sort of stood in for something else. So like a video that the artist considers a sculpture or a painting that is treated like a video, this sort of flexible, medium flexible kind of labeling, I say, for the work. And then over the course of three months, we re-exhibited the same works in three different exhibitions. So Were they really, the exact same works each time? Yeah, there was a little bit of cheating on the part of the artist mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, it was supposed to be just the same works re-exhibited three times so that it would really stress 
the exhibition itself as a medium and the various juxtapositions and the new meanings or the kind of new sensibility that each exhibition would have when it was just reorganizing the exact same objects into a different context or how it built a different narrative. People <laughs> cheated because artists cheat, which is kind of the best part of my job, uh, that people flex whatever task or whatever but framework the, you build. But the artists weren't there for each installation. If they weren't there for all of the installations, they would give a kind of set of rules for how their work would be exhibited or in what order, or they would give five works and say, start with one and then build it two. But some artists like Eric Friedenberg brought in a totally different sculpture that was kind of building off the other one at each iteration. So it was technically you the like, same. Wait a minute. They were just growing or multiplying <laughs> around. Yes, it was kind of a great contribution. And then other artists would give more than one work and then ask us to show one and then two. So there's kind of permutation. How many, how many artists? 17 artists total. It was and huge. Then, it was a large show. Yeah, it filled the space, certainly. But it didn't feel like it was 17 artists. Mostly because I think the installations were really strongly, uh, how do I say, kind of interdependent. So the artworks end up building a new work out of being all together. Maybe more so in the first show. The first of the three iterations, all the works were facing forward. So you had a sense. That's right. So yeah. some of the photographs were standing on the ground or hanging from the ceiling and the sculptures were all facing forward. So you had a kind of presentation or an almost like digital Z space right. and you could see the back of things. So I think in that sense, because it was one gesture of installation, you would really feel like there wasn't that many works. It was one work looking at you. And then as the iterations evolved, each work played a different part. They like sort of character. expanded into the space a little bit more, too. Yeah. Uh, one of our mutually good friends, Lucas Blaylock, was exactly. in the show. And I wonder if that's how we met. That's ex I think that is how we met. You might have come to see the show to see his work. Uh, I came to see Lucas's work. and then. Yeah, so hard. wait, where did you meet Lucas? At UCLA. Actually, I met Lucas on another great show. Public Fiction was invited to curate an exhibition in Turin as part of Artisima uh, yeah, a year this. prior. With Andrew Berardini, right? Yeah, with Andrew Berardini. And Artisima invited Public Fiction to do a special project. They had set up institutions within institutions in the city of Turin, which has a million museums. And we did an exhibition in the Church of the Holy Shroud. So we took out all the pews and replaced the floor with mirror to sort of reflect the trompe-l'oeil ceiling and invited different... There was seven young artists and two kind of old masters like De Carico and Carlo Molino. And one of the young artists was Lucas, the artists that were kind of flexing optical illusions. It was or a beautiful installation. It was absolutely amazing looking. Thank you. It yeah. was a good experience to be there. The way I, the way we came up with it was, I don't know if you played this game when you were a kid where you put a mirror under your nose and yeah. then you walk around the house, but it's like you're walking on the ceiling. Oh. That was how we came up with this idea of kind of making it so that it's an obvious optical illusion reflecting the ceiling and the shroud, which itself is a kind of, Leap of the imagination. Well, we used to play the game where you put the mirror under the nose to see if you were dead. Oh, so what? you could see the breath coming out. <laughs> <laughs> like, not the same game. Different game. Not the same game. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Me it was like you're walking on light fixtures. I'm gonna have to try that. You have with to try with kids. your kids. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. It's a whole new world. Okay, so we got right into some of the exhibitions yeah. that Public Fiction put together. But really, one of the reasons I wanted to have you come talk is because there's no physical space for Public Fiction right now. It's nomadic. Yep. But for how many years were you in a physical space here in L.A.? For um, the first five years. So I started in 2010 and up until 2015, it was in a storefront that was a kind of nondescript, you know, Southern California so storefront. So Michael Nenholte wrote a really good piece in Art Forum on public fiction. And you had worked with him at Made in L.A. Yeah. He curated public fiction into Made in L.A. and, made, and public fiction then built a curatorial thing inside of another thing, mm -hmm. which is another 
aspect of public fiction that happens often. One of the things that he had mentioned inside of the article was he called public fiction a micro institution. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how public fiction sort of came about when MoCA was in decline. But it wasn't about MoCA having issues here in L.A. It was about how public fiction filled a role of institutional programming within L.A. that didn't quite fit what a gallery was, but it it was showing as many artists as some of these institutional locations. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk a bit about how public fiction wasn't a gallery. Well, if anything, I kind of moved to Los Angeles to do public fiction. So there was this intention when I came here. From where? I was on the East Coast, mostly New York, Providence before that, doing an MFA at RISD. I, I started public fiction as the Museum of Public Fiction. When I first started, it was supposed to be a kind of museum. And I think Michael compares it to an institution because I really believe in institutions. So what I wanted to create was a program that was curatorially experimental. So it was playing with the exhibition itself. And in that sense, it reflects an institution. The experiment with public fiction for its first five years was to use a shell and to each time there was a different iteration of the show, it would become a different kind of institution. So for example, it opened first show that doesn't even have a publication was called Public Records. And it was a play on the record and the archive. So it had music and artists who were collecting. And so it was kind of a record store when you came in. The second show was called The Free Church. And it was it turned the whole space into a church. And over three months, six artists or collectives took over the space for two weeks at a time and made it a church of their own belief system. After that, it was the Gold Rush Manifest Destiny show. So it was a hotel. I know each time we'd use the marquee to make it like church in quotes or hotel, you know, high speed internet vacancy like that. So the play both on it being an institution as in like an art institution was always there, but also the play on existing institutions or businesses or archetypes of ways of bringing people together or public beliefs about institutions was always kind of under under it all. One of the things that I see on here too is the programming is rich, but it's also experimental and Mm -hmm. risky because you're not programming to sell. Right. You're putting a church in there and you're doing performance pieces, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So maybe part of the difference there too from the actual galleries is that your programming is actually more institutional than even some of the institutional stuff that's happening because it's not based on what is in a collection. True. Or, yes. or There's a lot of freedom in being poor. R- well, yeah. <laughs> so how did, how did you fund that space? Well, it is also an interesting question. Maybe we'll talk about it later about what it means once it was hosted by other institutions and where I am now. But initially, you know, I wanted that freedom. I moved to LA with a teaching position or a teaching job, at least like an adjunct teaching job and uh, funded it by living in the back and paying the rent, and then asking right. artists to bring their work it and had a bath, hang it. It had a bathtub back there, too. I installed the bathtub. <laughs> Did I, you really? I installed <laughs> the... <laughs> I bought that Clawfoot bathtub from from some random, really sketchy Craigslist situation, and then <laughs> installed the plumbing myself. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable now, but YouTube is incredible. Yeah, that's how I funded it originally, and but very quickly, or as, as quickly as possible... Uh, I started to get support from the outside, sometimes individual donors or foundations or grants or something, always independent of sales. Because they supported the programming or what? There's um, a way in which I always look for integrity in terms of 
where the money's coming from, what the subject of the show is, how the show is executed, how it, the language that's distributed around it. So I would go to a donor or a foundation and be You'd like, pitch it. Yeah. But that show, like, oh, this show is about cults and new religions in Los Angeles. There's a great history of this. I feel like you would be interested in this weird subculture. Could you give me $6,000 to make a publication? So how did you get yourself in, integrated into that community so quickly that you found donors? Was it be, they saw the programming and what was happening or how did you? It's more ad hoc than that. I'm, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of the cold call of the like, hi, my name is Lauren. I'm doing this thing. I'm a great fan of what you do. I would like to do this. What do you think? But you know, with the keeping it thoughtful and keeping it like, reaching out to a foundation that seems really invested in publications and Los Angeles and asking them to support this other issue that has a subject of Los Angeles or of California. So that's in a way how I was successful. I also always kept the overhead very low. So my ask is never very big. And now though, as years go by, I feel both the responsibility as an institution, as a mini institution, to not just be asking for artists to exhibit, but also to be supporting their practices. So my ask now is getting bigger and bigger, which is where being hosted by other institutions has become a really interesting model for public fiction once I left my own space to become an exhibition within an exhibition in another institution or an institution within another institution so that our, we have the ability to use the infra, existing infrastructure of an institution but be really experimental and push up against the walls because it's a temporary experience. You were producing publications because your mm -hmm. background mm -hmm. was as a designer. Yes, I have the, the kind of unusual background as a curator of coming from graphic design, but it was very intentional. I did an MFA in graphic design at RISD um, under the spell of Dexter Sinister, who and really? da David Reinfurt ended up being one of my teachers, and now we're collaborating on the next public fiction issue, which is kind of exciting uh, with the Serving Library. But yeah, this idea that Dexter Sinister was promoting, and, and many others around them at the time, but this community of designers that were really looking at what it meant to be in full control of production, you know, organization of content and its distribution and circulation. So this idea of having a skill set that would allow me to bring together a lot of disparate ideas, images and text alike, because my focus is as much art as literature and other disciplines, and then to be able to create an object or a format that it can then exist in the world uh, and be redistributed in the world. That was why I set out to make, to become a graphic designer and then to use those skills in art. In so your publications for public fiction, do yeah. they act as an extension of the exhibition or do they act as a support material for the exhibition? Well, the schedule of them, which is now going to change, but the, the schedule has always been that over the course of three months, I do an exhibition on a subject and during those three months, there's a range of ways in which an ex uh, the exhibitions can be group shows, solo shows, performances, talks, secret restaurants, like happenings. And all of that culminates into a journal, the publication, that brings together more content from other places. So the publication is really never meant to be documentation. It's also printed in a way that mediates what happened in the space so that it's more like another exhibition in print or an extension of the exhibition or an, a piece of ephemera, a kind of trace and additional content. I guess let's go into your curating public fiction into MOCA. Yeah, sure. In, in Made in LA and those type of things. Yeah. I guess give me a breakdown of how sure, this sort of, of came about. Well, what's cool about Michael's exquisite writing and amazing article is that it does really encapsulate the first five years of public fiction, where public fiction, as it's 
in itself stood in as a kind of institution in LA. And I think the economy of the other institutions and their transitional moments had a part in that. But Made in LA was in 2014. However, I kind of see it as the beginning of this model of public fiction existing within another institution. So institution within institution. What about Geffen Contemporary? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the club. Transition yeah. LA, the AV club. Yeah, the club. I guess that was... That was before. That was before. It, I guess maybe that wasn't the same as what came after. Yeah, it didn't feel like the same. Um, I think that that might have been the first time that I did an exhibition within an exhibition. That's so to what be I mean. given a, a piece of real estate, like a little space, right? and to be told, um, here, here you are, take your thing that is like at your scale that you usually do, and do it here in the scale not only of the, the Geffen, but do it in the scale of an institution. How big a space did you have within that? Giant. Really? I, I would lay on my back in the space while we were installing, and I was like, this is the institution. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I'm like such a fan. In the best case scenario, when someone writes about your work, they say something about you that surprises you, you know? And the thing that he says about public fiction in that article, he says that public fiction is, is institutional critique. And I was like, me? No. I love institutions. Right. I'm not institutional critique. But actually, I think all of these experiences, starting at the Geffen, which was difficult, and then the Hammer, which was not... What, what was difficult oh, yeah. about the Geffen? It was a difficult show. It was curated by Mike D from the Beastie Boys. Right. Well, to be invited in someone else's exhibition means that the other exhibition called the AV Club was about really bombastic experiences of like audio visual, exp- you know, extravaganza. You know, it was, it was really bombastic. Was and the show received well or not? I mean, I think it was super well received in the sense that there was a lot going on. It was really sophisticated and really well made. And it was a little uncomfortable for public fiction. I didn't know exactly what to do when I was... What your place was in it? Yeah, or like what I could contribute. And so what yeah. I ended up bringing to the table was the idea that public fiction would stage a quote club, which is the something at the intersection of the artist club, the social club, and the nightclub as it lives in art history. So like the Cabaret Voltaire to like wildness to like the club, they called it the Abstract Expressionists in New York. So I wanted to make something that would be like a, a blank slate, like a space that you could fill with happenings and with intersections of people. So it, we ended up creating a, a bit of a black box theater, a kind of Tron-like meets, Tron meets Guy de Quinte. Right. And it was activated by performances every night of that show, which was not a very long show. The whole show was up for maybe three weeks. Oh, it's not very long at all. It wasn't a very long show. It was, it was just kind of an intense experience. It was like one of the Beastie Boys died during that show. So the whole experience was really, and it was funded by Mercedes, which was... Okay, so what was the, you weren't going to go into the gossip, but what was the thing you were going to say regarding that? Well, what was I going to say? I was going to say that there was a clash of egos. (laughs) Inside the space for curating and putting stuff together. Yeah, there was Jeffrey Deitch versus Mike D from the Beastie Boys, and I found myself a little bit in the middle, to be honest, where Jeffrey was pulling me in as the Los Angeles art community person, and Mike D was coming in from the music world and also as like a New York collector and they weren't agreeing or they were agreeing and and I mean but this is pretty prototypical of like bringing in somebody who maybe isn't necessarily a curator in part of that world yeah but also somebody who uh, having a curator there that has strong opinions about what they want yeah and then having another curator you yeah who is just trying to curate your thing yes in the center of that yeah I mean you know what is interesting about this experience and it was one of the first ones especially at such a high level is you know 
we were going to make this really incredible artwork that was going to be collaborative between multiple artists. And we had, we worked on it for a long time or not that long. Actually, when you think of the scale of exhibitions, like this one artwork, we worked on it for months and it was only maybe two days before the opening that the fire marshal told us that we couldn't use a, a, a smoke machine or it was like a version of a smoke machine that we thought was safe for institutions. And it wasn't. No. And that piece fell apart and some artists worked and come together and, and people left and, and, you know, so, so that people were upset. The whole thing fell apart. Yeah. The whole thing fell apart. It was a disaster. But what I did really learn from the experience, well, a few things, of course, but as a curator, my position, because I'm not in one institution, I run my own, and I collaborate with these larger institutions, a lot of the time there's a negotiation between how these institutions are structured and what are what which walls you can push up against and which walls you cannot push up against in every institution, in every collaboration, in every context. And that one was just a kind of a brutal outcome for uh, a learning curve that was steep that I, I still benefit from. So it, it, lear- it taught you yeah. what to do in your next working with these institutions. I think that because every one of my collaborations is with a totally different institution, I always have to learn from the beginning again, right. like how people negotiate money and how people use their resources and what are the rules and why follow the rules and who really believes in they, the rules and who doesn't. They all have their own dynamic. They all have their own dynamic. And I love that. I love that. That's a big part of the the joy of like joining all these institutions at different moments. Similarly with like it's the equal, you know, pleasure of like working with an artist and figuring out like what is what they're working on, like how to make that thing make sense next to this thing, or how to make this what so, they're producing make sense to the public. So, where does public fiction come in? What differentiates public fiction from an independent curator? Well, you know, I have also exi- uh, made exhibitions as an independent curator, and I would argue, okay, I would argue that public fictions ambitions which have evolved over time but are often about treating the exhibition itself as a participant or as a medium so you have the artworks that are playing out what the artist is trying to produce and then you have the exhibition which is going to create a context or the frame for those artworks to then be mediated to the public which is coming in with their own perspective so because the exhibition itself is a medium I suppose is the best word for it that is kind of how it's not as much about authorship like it's not about saying this is a signature public fiction show. Or defining boundaries on the specific thing you're doing necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I use the word signature is because I don't think that you could necessarily look at multiple public fiction shows and say, this looks like a public fiction show or this is a public fiction show. It's more because they're always so responsive to the context and the concept that's promoting them or that's that prompted them. Thinking about this too, one of the differences being if you have an independent curator, they can then, curate public fiction into this and sort of have a mini show inside a show yeah, or a secondary evaluation of the prospect of whatever they're, they're positioning. Yeah. Have that outside source. And it's not just bringing in a separate curator. It's bringing in a separate format for looking at sort of the same information. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. I, I yeah, exactly. I feel like if there were like a, a constant in a lot of the exhibitions is that the public fiction shows when they're invested, when they're, implanted into another institution, they question everything. You not being an independent curator and having public fiction have its boundaries as being public fiction. There was the Raymond Horton Mann Foundation. You were awarded the grant for emerging artists. Yeah. I remember seeing the award go out and I was like, wait a minute, Lauren's not an (laughs) artist. Like, how is she getting the grant? Yeah. But at the same time, you do work within the community that's good work. So how does that, like, how does that work? Well, I guess I've gotten... 
I've gotten a couple of grants that were... Um, Artist grants. Yeah. I suppose I'm a maker as much as I'm a thinker and a writer. And so I'm coming at it from this organizer or, you know... Because I don't think this is what I... Oh, yeah, th- this was my sort of question around that. You don't consider, like, if you're curating a show and you're putting it together, that's not your artwork then. No, 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 no. You, you know not. what I mean? I see. Yeah, yeah, I see. So... So you as artist. What is me as artist? Yeah. What is you as artist? Where do you find your role as artist within this space? And I don't, let me me say this too. I don't think you necessarily need to, to get that grant. I think to put labels on some of these grants is for artists when it could reasonably go to something that is contributing to artists within the community. I mean, there's a fine line there too. Right. Getting that grant was like, you know, getting a bottle of water in the desert. That was much needed. <laughs> it was much needed because I'm obviously not. You know. You're like, oh, my God, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the first and foremost, thank you, Rima Hart, you know, Man Foundation. I certainly don't consider myself an artist, and I find that to be. That's what I wonder. A really valuable distinction to make because I really believe in artists, and I, and I work with artists, so I don't, when I'm, Working with artists through public fiction, I don't consider the artist's work material, you know? Right. Well, that's what, yeah. Right. So it's not it's not material to make my piece. And, and identity, but what I do like, okay, what I do like is, and, you know, public fiction is not really a museum, even though it calls itself sometimes a museum of public fiction. It's not a nonprofit institution. It's not a for-profit institution. It's not a gallery. It's not an artist. It's not a collective. But it's also not one individual. So I like the inability to... Sort of define it? Mm-hmm. The inability to define it is part of its flexibility. Charm? Charm. <laughs> <laughs> charm, yeah, charm. Yeah, I think the inability to define it is part of its strength, if anything, because it's yeah, allowed me to word. really be responsive to the context and the ideas, the context being, a you know, now the institution that invites me, you know, secondly, like the current social political context, like... Next, like the the context, what the artists are making, you know. So there's a flexibility in being not not one thing, being all these things. One of the things I see too, mm-hmm. which is important to note to artists in general, is the person on the selection committee for Reem Horton Mann was also Michael Nedholty. So <laughs> I think he was on the jury actually, and this was before he wrote the article. But I guess my point is he's familiar with oh yeah with my work or with, yes, with public fiction with public fiction yeah. so it's not like a preferential thing where he already knows you because right. this was before that right. what I'm saying is he knew of and he was familiar enough with the practice mm-hmm. as either artist or public fiction or whatever whatever it is mm-hmm. undefined who's already into it mm-hmm. you know before all this stuff happened yeah before Art Forum before Made in LA mm-hmm. that's why those grants happen sometimes mm-hmm. because the people who are on the selection committees or the juries understand something about the artists who are actually participating mm-hmm. or have an inside track into why they work or why they, why they don't work sometimes. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yes, of course. And I mean, Michael is doing great work on, he's a good curator. He's a great curator and his, good his writer. made in, yeah. oh my God, amazing writer, but his, his made in LA, him and Connie is made in LA was interesting because it started the work that he's continuing now, which is this idea that the micro institution as a body, as a thing. Right. Um, which fits your. Exactly. Perfectly. It fits exactly. public fiction perfectly. <laughs> well, it's already in his wheelhouse, right? Yeah. That's the thing he's interested in. 
Yeah, and it's you know such a pleasure to get someone to write about that aspect of because I wouldn't say that that's everything public fiction is. No, that's absolutely one not. thing that it is, and so that's you're a publisher. You're yeah, exactly, right? Exactly, and you know, you know, when I first started it, there was a moment where I thought maybe I could fund it fully by doing secret restaurants. So on. Oh, <laughs> is that why you tried the secret restaurant? Yes, I did. I mean, I did one for every show for every series. It was a topical secret restaurant. So like. During the Free Church, there was a secret restaurant inspired by the source. For family. how long? How long did it run for? The secret restaurants would be, usually it would be one weekend. And you'd charge people for the meal. Exactly. And, and artists would, you, would cook. Okay, so I was wondering who your cooks were. Exactly. So they were very experimental. Um, they were always tied to the concept of the show. Did you pay your cooks or not? Well, they first made money. You know, the way the profits were divided, to first pay back the food or all the stuff we had to buy. And then everybody got a little cut. And if there were performers, they got a little cut. And then public fiction was meant to keep the rest. But it was so... So how long did you figure... <laughs> how long until you figured this out? Years, this wasn't making you years. money. <laughs> it took years. I mean, I think after a certain point, it was so obvious like, that nobody was huh. going to make money. Yeah. Here's $200 after like five days of like, like really intensive work. Holy shit. Yeah. No, it was a disaster. Fundraising wise, it was a disaster. Because also, you know, there's a lot of secret restaurants out there, but we really wanted it to be affordable so it was never more than i think the most expensive dinner we did was 35 dollars. oh it's so cheap most of them were 20 dollars, and it was really like but i think that's part of you know part of what public fiction when it had its own space also really reflected was the participants were the audience the community i mean brendan fowler did a dinner where there were like 70 people you know like and and two seatings and rotations and people waited for their food for two hours but they were having fun so whatever yeah. and the food was great or the sometimes the food was awful or one part was great and the other part was awful but there was a real sense of gathering and they always happened within the exhibition so the artwork was again reframed by the experience of seeing it through that one of the reasons i think you've been so successful in la and working in doing what you do and having public fiction be successful when it had the the space but now nomadic is because I remember walking in there the first time and you were so friendly and forthright and really interested in having a conversation like right from the bat. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's a rarity for people to, we were talking about doing that cold call and reaching out and just having <laughs> conversations. More people need to do that. Mm -hmm. I think even the art communities, people don't do that enough. And as a artist walking in off the street and having a conversation with a curator or a person running a, a, a venue and we're, we're, artists are asked to participate is really healthy. And I, I, I can see it goes a long way mm, Thank you for goodwill as well, too, within mm. the community. It's, it's a really sincere curiosity towards what this thing is doing and how it can keep changing. You and can tell. I, you know, I get nervous like moments like now when we're committing things to tape because I feel like it's such a moving <laughs> body. <laughs> it's such a, a, a shape shifting thing and such. And, you know, if you ask me originally why I started public, my motives for starting public fiction you know, then two years later had already evolved. And then two years after that continued to evolve. And what I'm trying to do now with public vision is different than what I was doing then. So the best case scenario is that you have an idea, you set out to make it happen. It changes while you're doing it. It happens. And then you land somewhere totally different by the end. So whatever your next move is, you would never have known what it was going to be. So going into some of these other exhibitions, quickly go over what was Made in LA? What did you participate? What did you contribute to Made in LA? So a diagram. Um, <laughs> no, really, it was uh, I collaborated with um, I collaborated on that show as well. That show ended up being in two places, um, which is something I've done a couple of times. 
and I really liked. So there was an exhibition at the Hammer, and there was an exhibition at Public Fiction Space in Highland Park. It was a collaboration with writer and curator Sarah Lair Grayworm. We had so much fun doing it. She's great. Oh, my God. (laughs) We had so much fun doing it. She's the best. Um, But, you know, we thought about what it meant for public fiction to... For me, it was also, by the way, the beginning of a long investigation into the idea of what it means to have a soapbox or a platform. So originally I wanted to do a show about the public intellectual, which is funny because I'm, you know, still trying to work that out right now. But, well, the public intellectual is... It feels like an art term. No, no. It's it's a figure who stands in front of a time or its society and, and speaks towards its through its culture or about its culture or about its time. Somebody or its who values. shares their knowledge? Yeah, somebody who has a either a level of expertise or a, a facility with language so that it's it's easy for them to articulate ideas that are in the collective conscious. So, so the opposing would be the private intellectual? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's that's the sort of the the two sides of the character that I'm interested in Right. thinking about like what is the difference who is the public intellectual in American culture I'm from France as you know and in France there's a really rich history of public intellectuals like Sartre who wrote about culture and about social behavior and then also stood in the streets and led protests down the street of student bodies you know I guess the public intellectual has this kind of presence in the past that I'm trying to identify like where that lives in America which has a rich history of anti-intellectualism <laughs> or maybe has been growing towards... Which we can see specifically now, too. Yeah, that's been the growing... The revolt against the intellectual. Yeah, the, the revolt against connoisseurship or expertise, which is is a really long conversation to have because it you know involves talking about what are the platforms on which we have a public sphere? Are they all separate platforms? Is everyone in their own little micro-public sphere you know, with these silos of information or of... of beliefs that we live in on the internet yeah it's a big topic it's it's and i'm i'm ready to talk about it i just um we could have an, another show about that <laughs> sure I'd love we, that. We really i'm could. working on it yeah I'm, I'm working on it. i'm working on it it's part of the next sort of three exhibitions i'm working on are on this are, are really trying to take a multifaceted approach to this so let's go in character. i want to go into the other exhibitions but sure. let's finish on yeah, made in LA. made in la the title of the public fiction show at the hammer was a public fiction and it was about it was supposed to be about being public fiction so over the course of the three months of that biennial we had six artists do kind of solo presentations in the room that we were given at the museum with the idea that these six solo shows accumulated into a group show and at the same pace we had six writers write six chapters that were meant to accumulate into a novel so there was a sense of accumulation or of uh, of yeah, accumulation, I suppose. And then in parallel, at the same pace, so every two weeks in Highland Park at the space, we we're having the same rotation of six artists. And this time, instead of six writers, we had six comedians. And so while we had this kind of semi-serious, you know, a public fiction at the Hammer Museum rotating every two weeks at public fiction in Highland Park, we set up this comedy stage, this kind of stand-up comedy stage with a really graphic red curtain and black stage and one spotlight and we asked six different artists to present one work on the stage for two weeks at a time so while at the hammer we are inhabiting the room and the tropes of the exhibition and the multiple objects dealing with space it was called the room we gave a prompt where people had to respond to the room at public fiction they were responding um to the stage and so six artists took that stage in turn and then 
we had one night where six comedians took the stage. And it turned. could be like a singular object on the stage. I remember going there and seeing the sculpture on the stage. Exactly. It was mostly asked to be a one thing so that it was kind of like a one-liner or a one-character or a stand-up comedian, you know? Smart. Well, it was complicated, as things are, and I'm not afraid of complicated. Public fiction is complicated, or it invites the desire that... The, the, the willingness to say complicated is not should not be alienating. Well, also, you never do things easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. One of the more exciting shows I saw in a gallery here in L.A. in the last... I would say four years maybe, was the show that you did at China Art Objects. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I walked into that space, and it was the same thing. Like, you, that exhibition, a piece got added over time. Mm-hmm. And that show is called This Sentence with a Comma. So how long did that last? It lasted, I mean, they always kind of last three months. I sort of say that. I think that one lasted 10 weeks, 10 weeks. So there was an opening when new work started going into the space. Yeah, the way that show was structured was... so. It's subject matter. It was about choreography and language. And so it consistently exhibited either choreography and it was choreographed or um, language and both as they lived on screen. And I was treating the gallery like a kind of screen or like a frame. Um, so the first week there was one artist. The second week there were two. The third week there were three and so on. And so the show built or accumulated in space. And then to bring people back, rather than just trying to bring them back for one artist at a time, we punctuated every week with a series of screenings or performances that addressed the reason for which that artist was being engaged with through the idea of choreography and language on screen. So I think I only <laughs> went to, I went to two of the openings. Okay. But I went back in between to see what was happening to the space in between each one of those things as yeah. they started to come together. It just struck me, if you were going to be considered an artist, that's where I would consider you an artist. Oh, because of how it was installed? Because of, yeah, because of how all of those pieces came. It was a composition. Yeah. And you were building a composition out of all of these works. And I guess you could say that about any curator, right? But yeah. But then in reference to the other things that were sitting around it and how they sort of came together, and they were sort of remnants of ex- of performances and pieces coming together. It was just really very, very tight. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I'm interested in, well, that show was also a lot about syntax. So it was a lot about building a sentence or building something out of a lot of different parts. You know, one of the consistent interests that I have and therefore public fiction has in all of its shows is really blurring the line between what is frame and what is object. So what is the subject of what you're looking at and what is the background? Right. So Emily's performance would happen in context of these other works. Like there's incredible documentation of performers, you know, clad in, in multiple colored fabrics and with body paint and they're half naked and they're bending around each other and they're in front of a Sasha Bronig painting that has these really complex forms, these optical illusions, these really bright colors, this, this sculptural illusion within the flat plane of her painting style. And, and so in that instance, in that documentation image, Sasha's painting is background or context for these performances and then the objects stay later and then you know the roles are reversed so so there's a way in which the objects uh, sorry i'm I not was, doing a great job about no 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 it totally makes sense i was having a conversation with b words the other day and mm-hmm. we were talking about the he does in the this bomb article him and john newman talk about the how over a period of time the object has changed from the object as individual as the object is installation mm-hmm. so artist work Sculptors often, and I think we're talking more about, I'm talking more about sculptors here, work as 
installation artist working as a singular to have the individual object is more of a rarity than have the object as installation now. Mm-hmm. I see artists sometimes when they do installation, you'll see a room filled with things. Mm-hmm. You can tell right away what the thing for sale in the room is, mm-hmm. but then there's this, the remnants that are sitting around in the different places in the room that just sort of fill the space and give atmosphere mm-hmm. to the object that is intended to be the piece that is for sale. And I think that's when I have a problem with object is installation. Mm-hmm. Now, your exhibition that you put together didn't feel that way to mm-hmm. me. If I hear you, like what I just heard you say was that you distrust the codependence between an object and its context as if it was a crutch in the instance of a commercial object relying uh, on this less commercial object for credibility. Or yes, for, I think, yes, for, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that would be a really good way to phrase mm-hmm, it. I see. And I, I don't, that's more of a state. I don't yeah. even know if that's a question. Yeah, it's I don't just, know how to answer that. But I see, do you know what I'm saying though? Yes. I see that often when artists attempt installation. Yes. And the other thing is too, I think everybody wants to, you go into the realm where you're a painter, but now you're not just a painter, you're mm. an installation artist. Right. Well, one thought that I have from what you were saying now is that... Which, by the way, is not a problem. Yeah. I, I don't think that's an issue. You can do that. Yeah. I, I really rely on the thought that... Um, and the next show I'm working on really stresses this, is that public fiction as an exhibition is a really... Um, it's, it's a strong context, and it's a temporary context. So an artwork enters a public fiction show or a composition or, you know, collective of other people, and it's it's changed by where it is for that moment. And then it gets to go back and be itself elsewhere. I don't know if that relates really to this, you know, this part of the conversation we were talking about, the object versus the installation, but I really... But it has its own existence. It has its own existence elsewhere. And And that's part of my process as a curator, for example, is that I try to do a ton of studio visits to go see a lot of art and, and sort of really see what an individual artist is thinking about on, on in their terms, in their world, what they're doing. And then I think about how I bridge that with another artist practice. And that's a totally different context for that same object to live in or that same image to live in. Well, I think that's beneficial, though, to artists as well, too, because when you're giving reference points and they're playing off each other, mm-hmm. this energy exists and it may may help the artist figure out new ways to approach their own work. Mm-hmm. That Yeah, again, that sounds like a, the best case scenario. Well, of course it's the best case scenario, but like in yeah. that show at China, yeah. Art Objects, yeah. to me that's what was happening. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. And then the, the final piece of the show, because again, it was kind of, you know, it was about choreography or is it, it was about building a sentence. It was about building a paragraph and then an essay, you know. So there was something really linguistic. There was something really performative about the show as a whole, and the final touch to the show was the final artist, Pascual Sisto, who added the light. We called it the lighting and theatrics. But it's a video, it's a video projection overlay. It's a video projection that had its space, that had been a space that we had reserved to the sc- a giant wall in the middle of the gallery that had been reserved to the weekly screenings that was finally inhabited by Pascual's piece. But then also he made this programmed spotlight that went around the room and lit with a red light, so dramatically changing the artworks all the different other pieces. So there was a way in which he was really applying his filter of his perspective or his piece, his own filter literally, because it was read onto these other artworks. So it really... It was a good piece. Yeah, it's a great piece. It's so sort of crazy. I have one of his works in my house. Oh, you do? Uh, Yes, I did a trade with him a while ago. I I really love him as an artist. Yes, he's great. Because he is a sculptor 
a video artist. He is yeah. He is multifaceted. And the the interesting negotiation. So everything about public fiction shows, be it with institutions or artists, is always a negotiation. And the interest interesting negotiation with Pasquale at the end was the piece itself, his piece, needed all the lights to be out, like just like a black box with this red spotlight. And I asked him if for the context of this show, we could keep some lights on the other works so that you could have this double experience of seeing the works and his filter applied. Oh, and you can't <laughs> shut off the lights on everybody else's artwork. Well, but you could. I mean, everything is up for grabs, especially with <laughs> exhibitions I work on. Like, it's a conversation worth having, you know, especially right. if it's about like, Every week, every artist gets a kind of spotlight on their work. So and you're going to see the work anyway. Yeah. Um, so we we discussed it, and he was kind enough to let some, you know, the lights stay on. And so there was both his piece and the other works. And I saw that recently he exhibited the piece in by itself. So all the lights out, that spotlight, its video, you know, and, and it really had an opportunity to really just be its thing. So that's what I mean when, like, think the, what I appreciate about these exhibitions being so strongly such a strong context for the works at that moment is that it's a temporary experience whereas like when you see a permanent collection hang in a museum for example that's kind of meant to be its permanent experience you know right, like right. this is the best case scenario for seeing this artwork and this is what the artist meant and this is what it you know and i don't believe in that i think it's a flawed system but and, and maybe that's why i kind well, of stress so if you had yeah. an opportunity to curate a permanent collection yeah. how, how would you change that yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. That might be like too big of an answer because it would it would be about questioning everything, like everything about the walls and the institution and the pace. Like, you know, would there be one object at a time over the course of like two years, where only oh. one object of the collection comes out at a time, or you know, some whatever permutation that could really challenge the mode of viewing objects the or institution. the institution. Um, but a quicker, easier way to answer your question instead of going through all the ideas I've been noodling with for a while, but would be, you know, that's how, how public fiction collaborated with Mocha last year because, um, storefront. Yeah. Helen, Helen Molesworth and I met when she was about to reinstall the permanent collection of the museum. It was her first big new exhibition upon arriving at Mocha. And she wanted to, as she has, you know, in the past through that, seminal essay how to install art as a feminist that she wrote for connie butler's um publication she basically wanted to as in her in her own words upend the manner the canon the way in which we read art history so reorganize it put people in rooms together that had not been put in rooms together and public fiction came in and what i proposed to her as doing this storefront space which is outside of the main galleries so above and outside <laughs> the main spaces of the museum was to create footnotes to the permanent collection. So Public Fiction's show was about footnoting the install that she made with new commissions by artists and writers that would respond to the the permanent collection objects and show with these tangents. So they would have their own conversation about that piece? If you could make this leap of the imagination, these new pieces were meant to live in the margin because they were in a separate space outside and to this, you know, above and to the side of the main text that was the permanent collection, but that these tangents would allow a different read of the objects existing in the permanent collection show, or that they would fill the space in between the objects, these historical objects that had this trajectory and, and that had this existing context of when they were made and, and how they were being exhibited now. So would they be considered like op-ed pieces based on <laughs> like what the filler is between the two pieces or were they like factual or were, where they were were not they? factual. They were not. They were not. I was definitely, I was, you know, the language I was using was that these were footnotes and that they were tangents and that they were, instead of 
clarifying, that they were complicating the read of those objects. So someone like Naveen Mahmood would look at uh, Barbara Caston's studio compositions that were in the museum and apply this, and I wouldn't even say that she applied the Barbara Caston thinking into her own production, but that she would present her work as if it was footnoting the Barbara Caston works, adding to it this other dimension or this other way of engaging with it. And I think hopefully the viewer could engage both with the text and the objects in the space and then have a different read or a different perspective on the permanent collection. So it was meant to have this kind of back and forth and because the storefront space is a glass box that's kind of, you can't go inside, so it's flat, it was meant to be treated a little bit like the page. So there were a lot of analogies, I guess, being made there. But um, in response, again, to what I would do if I had a permanent collection to contend with, which would be a really exciting prospect, this was my first attempt at it, to start by footnoting it or complicating it or filtering it through the perspective of contemporary practitioners, both writers and artists. Right. So... The horizon, what's coming up? What's coming up? Um, well... There's there's a good bit. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot coming up. Um, the next public fiction series, the next three-month series that is topical and that is experimenting with uh, objects and performance and publication is called The Conscientious Objector. And it's meant to redefine this military term, really, um, through the perspective artists, writers, and contemporary practitioners, but it will be at the Max Center for Art and Architecture, the Schindler House here in, in West Hollywood. It, I was originally invited by the city of West Hollywood, so it's funded by government. How did they find you? Oh, they found me through the Art Forum article. All roads lead back to Michael Nedholte. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was... Um, it was, you know, I think it was published February 1st of 2016 for the February issue. And on February 2nd of 2016, I got an email from... No way. Yeah, from it was West like Hollywood. Immediate. Yeah, because the last sentence in Michael's article is, and public fiction no longer has a mothership. So public right. fiction is now nomadic. So they reached out to me and they said, would you like to engage with the city of West Hollywood, which is an incredible city? Hell yes. Oh my goodness. It's yes. <laughs> oh my God. And so originally the exhibition was meant to be in multiple sites, in many sites of West Hollywood, engaging all these different, activating all these different places. Um, the show, now the objects of the show are going to be held at the Schindler House, which has this amazing history of bringing together intellectuals and create, creatives, makers uh, from Southern California to come up with new ideas for how to organize architecture, how to live. It was a, an experiment in communal living also. Um, so the house is kind of amazing and interesting in that contrast between the public and the private intellectual because it is a private space, or it was. It was like a, a domestic space. But So the public fiction show, The Conscientious Objector, reverses my existing models. It's also it's a collaboration with another curator. Her name is Francesca Bertolotti Bailey. And she wears many hats. And one of her other roles outside of, she's full-time at the Liverpool Biennial and um, collaborating with a project in France, Con Council. But one of her other projects is called The Serving Library. And that is the extension of what Dexter Sinister has turned dot, dot, dot into this new publication called The Serving Library. So this is a long lead-in to say that instead of publishing the journal at the end, as I always do with public fiction, this new issue is going to come out first. And it's a collaboration with The Serving Library, so we're making the next issue of the Serving Library is also the next issue of Public Fiction. And we've commissioned a series of texts on the subject of public fiction, of the conscientious objector, of entertainment and power, because we're set in Hollywood. So we've commissioned people to write scripts 
or pitches or uh, monologues or different things. And then that publication will then be republished in space when we invite actors to perform them in the house. Oh, that's great. So that'll happen in the beginning of 2018. But in the meantime, in the lead up to it, what is the conscientious objector? It's a resistance. It's civil disobedience. It's also a, a sort of a, a mode of public address, a manner of resisting. So we're using a lot of different modes of address. So the publication, the script, the exhibition of objects, and a series of commercials that are going to be on public access television that will be in anticipation to the show. So we've commissioned five artists to make new commercials that will be broadcast as a lead up to the exhibition of objects. And then you'll see the exhibition of objects in space and then actors performing the text from the publication. What's your distribution of public fiction and specifically for this next one? Yeah. How do you distribute that? Well, that's the next one's an exciting prospect because um, the serving library is much more organized than I am. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, they're, they're pros. They have a print publication. Public fiction is essentially every platform I use is takes a different form. So the exhibitions are different than the journal, which is different than the web presence, say. So that Because you don't have enough to do. <laughs> it's just like it's just like it's about integrity. It's about like every medium sort of playing out, every every medium allowing the concept to shine and it's whatever. Anyway, it's amazing. It's a, it's it. great. No. <laughs> but the serving library does this thing where they have a publication that publishes in print all of these texts, but also has a web counterpart where you can download the texts as free PDFs. So perfect. Yeah. So this new issue will be available on their website as downloadable PDFs. They're called bulletins. So each article will be like a bulletin and there's scripts and there's fiction. Do you, and there's do you want people to read along when the actors are performing? That's an interesting idea. We haven't figured out exactly how the text will live in the space of the show. So that's something that at MOCA during the storefront, I did a lot of work with like exhibiting language as much as exhibiting objects. We haven't gotten to this part yet for this show. Um, but to finish on your question about distribution, the Serving Library is now going to be taken up, distributed by Roma Publications. Do you know Roma yeah, Publications? Yeah, yeah. So, so they are going to be broadcasting it into the world, which is very exciting. But yeah, so public fiction will have its 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 thing with them. And then for you personally, yeah. Oh, I'm starting um, in parallel to public fiction. I'm taking over the literary magazine at CalArts, which is coming out of the School of Critical Studies. It was started, it was replacing one that they had had for a long time. Maggie Nelson and Janice Lee started it last year, almost as a course, which is a very exciting prospect. So it's, it's called Sublevel? It's called Sublevel. It's a magazine that mostly, it's a web magazine mostly, and it's following the schedule of one academic year. So we'll be, we last year they did it as a course. So they began with the students in September and then published it online in February, and then had a print counterpart. What's the on, content? Well, they're topical. Uh, so every year there's a different subject, and then there's different categories that are filled, so a kind of forum part, uh, a studio part, a uh, criticism part, and it really... With the students or with whom? Hmm, oh, no, it publishes writers. It doesn't publish the students' work. Okay. It's, what's interesting about the student component of it is that it, the staff, let's say I'm the managing editor of this new magazine but the staff is a rotating cast of characters out of the student out of the student body yes and that's great yeah i'm excited about it i'm excited about it as to be honest as as kind of experimental pedagogy like how do you how do you make a course out of the production of a magazine you know over one subject bringing a lot of different voices so when you're starting that now or when are you I'm going to start next month. 
I have a lot of ideas for how I'd like to see a publication play out in the context of the School of Critical Studies at CalArts and also how it will participate in the larger, you know, cultural landscape of cultural production in LA and beyond. So I'll probably spend a couple of months figuring that out and then the students will come in in September and we'll start working on the next issue, which will be exciting. The first issue has a really great subject. Maggie and Janice came up with the subject of contagion, which is something that when I first when I first read Contagion, I was like, oh my God, it's so 90s. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> was that movie from the 90s or the aughts? And, um, but it's interesting because I've been, as we started talking a little bit earlier about like micro publics or publics or the fact that like, is there one public now or are there many different publics that are keeping themselves in the silos of other like minds? You know, after the election here in, in the US, there was a lot of conversation around the bubbles or the bubbles of like preaching to the choir or these kind of groups of people that all have the same belief system and sort of read the same articles anyway the, the way in which these algorithms also kind of feed you this this information that you know you kind of already agree with so um, the question of whether or not there is one public or many publics and how you reach a public um, this is something Sarah Lair-Grewer and I talk a lot about because I'm always like, how can we stand on the biggest soapbox and speak to the largest audience and and sort of raise the bar of the expectation of what should be in the public sphere? And then Sarah's model, which she's more interested in, is more like the first concert by the Sex Pistols where there were like 15 people in the room, but those 15 people, each one of them went to do something fantastic, like, you know, or like concert was the beginning, sort of the patient zero <laughs> of this really high production or high quality or kind of new thought or new new process or new sound or whatever. So the writing that was published in the first issue of Sublevel is exquisite. Every every word is perfect. I think in in a world of mass media mm -hmm. and where we see mm -hmm. viral things happen, mm -hmm. it's an easy desire to want to be viral immediately. Right. I don't think it's necessarily about reaching the masses to begin with. I think it's producing content that will distribute itself. Mm -hmm. If you can have those many things happen where you influence a small group, mm -hmm. but that group then goes to expand and sort of like, I think there's there's a benefit in both. Yeah, I want to think about that more. Like, I want to think more about the difference between the viral and contagion. Because you know? I think part of the There's problem, like a one-on-one -on -one to contagion. There's like well, a contact. But the problem with viral is that, not always the problem with viral, but viral sometimes doesn't have content. Right. Right. Like it's devoid of content. Right. To a certain extent. Yes. It, because it's easily digestible. Agreed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so viral might be what you want for acknowledgement, but really the smaller mm -hmm. influential groups that you hit, I think, are more relevant for a long term mm -hmm. sort of success. Yeah. I think you're you're talking about pace and, you know, I get the, yeah, no, sustained that's a, focus. Well, and, I think that's a good thing for mm -hmm. artists in their studio practice. Mm hmm. And we see that, we can see that often where, where an artist will blow up, be huge, and then they sort of peter out real quickly because of, they don't pace themselves sometimes. That's not always the case, of mm -hmm. course. We could be so lucky that that doesn't happen to us. But mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting thing to think about, especially when you're talking about in terms of publication mm -hmm. in, in different formats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm certainly, as you are as well, I think I'm very suspicious of the viral or that, you know, that is an ambition uh, because it does imply a really short attention span. <laughs> Lauren, I want yeah. to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs>